and good morning. Welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, Taylor Velazquez. The 2022 general election is fast approaching, with early voting starting on October 11th, and this year, voters are asking... a critical question to amend the state's constitution. Constitutional Amendment Number 1 is a ballot initiative that would allocate more money to early childhood education and our public school systems from the state's land-grant permanent fund. This year, it, it's been in the works for years by advocates as well as New Mexicans have struggled with child well-being and education, even ranking last nationally in both on the 2022 Kids Count data profile. And as it stands now, the state's land-grant permanent fund is the second wealthiest fund in the country, sitting at about $25 billion. The amendments before voters would increase distributions from that fund by 1.25%, delivering more another $125 million annually to early childhood programs and up to $75 million to K-12 education. Advocates point to the potential impacts like raising teacher salaries, expanding supports for at-risk students as part of the requirements for the Yazzie v. Martinez lawsuit, and expanding childcare and pre-K programs. Others raise concerns that this is not the way the money should be spent because the state has no successful way of measuring results. Also, critics point out as the state and the nation are moving away from fossil fuels, how secure will this fund be in the future and how permanent will it be? This morning, we'll be taking a look at what it means to fund early childhood education and what plans decision makers have for distributing the money. And we want to hear from you. Do you work in the early childhood field? How How would this funding impact you? Are you against the amendment and why? And are you are you a family who are expecting and who would impact by be impacted by home visits and make you feel prepared for parenthood? Email us at letstalknm at kunm.org. Call us at 505-277-5866 or tweet to us using the hashtag Let's Talk NM. And my first guest this morning is Haley Hines, Deputy Director and Senior Researcher of the Cradle to Career Policy Institute at the University of New Mexico. Good morning, Haley. Hi. And just to start off with a little bit of background, when thinking of early childhood, it's natural for folks to think pre-K programs that get younger children prepared to begin school. But can you talk about what early childhood education is and what foundations it does lay for children's futures? Definitely, because I do hear people in my life sort of talk about this and and say sort of, this is for pre-K, right? That's what people think when they um, hear early childhood education. They kind of picture three and four-year-olds in a classroom setting getting ready for kindergarten. And I sort of want to say, well, yes, and, because um, pre-K is part of it. New Mexico does have a high-quality pre-K program um, that could be expanded under this initiative. But early childhood also includes like early, early childhood, so home visiting services for pregnant people and families with new babies, and ISO supports for the whole sort of child care sector. So, um, you know, including uh, child care for infants and toddlers, as well as those sort of preschool age children. Um, and so it's really, if you think about the, the mission of the early childhood education and care department, the way they frame it, it's really kind of a birth to kindergarten entry um, period with a lot of different services in there. According to CDC data, the first eight years of child life is crucial when it comes to learning, health, and just future life success. Can you explain the coordination between child brain development and early childhood education and those supports? Uh, yeah, so I'm not a neurosurge- like a neuroscientist, but I'm a big fan of, of early childhood development <laughs> neuroscience. Uh, so really what, what the research has found is that the brain in those early years is extremely plastic, meaning that it's very, um, it's, it's can be changed and there's a lot going on during that time. So there's just millions of brain connections being formed all the time. And children during that period and babies are very sensitive to what's going on in their environments. If good things happen for them during that time, they can really thrive and they can thrive many years down the road, the research has suggested, because these good things have happened. And it can also be a time where a lot of sort of um, toxic stress and trauma can also have really significant impacts. So there's a strong... um, there's just a very strong sort of downstream impact in terms of what happens for children in those first five years. Um, and there's a, a sort of very strong evidence base, particularly around the brain science and about that. And getting back to the funding that we're talking about this morning, part of that funding could be allocated to home visits and 
children with families or families with children, what does those services actually look like and how could that really have that impact on children's health? So I do want to clarify a couple things. One, I don't work at the state early childhood and education and care department. So I, I'm not going to speak for their priorities, although they do have a very detailed strategic plan that they've released that sort of um, in a really helpful way talks about what they would do if, if you know, um, sort of in the next couple of years, inclusive of if this funding was passed. Um, but in terms of how things like home visiting, child, high quality child care, pre-K, other uh, programs can affect that early brain development, I think a lot of it has to do with children having really stable, high quality environments where they are sort of, we're almost like a, a village of people who know about kids, know about kids' brain development and love those kids wraps around them. So that has to do with, at the home visiting level, having families who have really good information about reading to their children who have really good information about getting to those well child checks with their pediatrician and they have that good information and that helps them really effectively wrap around their child form a strong relationship and help them succeed in child care you know many many families need or want child care so that they can work or go to school or do the other things that make them whole and so um, families if they know that their child can go to a really high quality and consistent place and that can be you know inclusive of infant care toddler care and sort of on up through the preschool years um, if families have high if children have quite sort of access to those really high quality environments then that sort of contributes to that brain development in that village and then sort of up in the spectrum for three-year-olds and four-year-olds you see something very similar for pre-k with a more like somewhat more structured environment getting ready for kindergarten but also that um, high quality environment helping children thrive and helping all those brain connections happen that I talked about earlier and I'm hearing that a lot of these programs that could be funded would make parents whole or families whole. And if this amendment were to pass, would we have the workforce that's needed or would decisions makers have to consider allocating funds towards training and educating a new workforce or a better workforce? The workforce piece of this is really complex and layered. And I think for, so the simple answer to your question, I think, is that right now, if you just looked to expand services without putting additional workforce supports in place, that would not be very effective. But I don't think that's what the state is proposing. There is um, there is not the workforce out there at the ready to staff an expansion of early childhood education right now. In fact, the childcare sector is having a really difficult time hiring the people it needs at its sort of current size. But I think one thing that's important to consider is sort of workforce supports and that um, the state has programs in place in the terms of scholarships for, for early childhood educators um, who are in school and um, wage stipends for early childhood educators to try and support that workforce. So there's a little bit of a, ch a chicken and an egg conversation you can have about the workforce, which is that right now we don't have the workforce we need, but we probably won't get the workforce we need without an infusion of resources. So um, that is, I think, a really important conversation because expansion without workforce investments is probably a non-starter, but I don't think that's what's being proposed. Unfortunately, there's no doubt the state has been struggling with their rankings in child well-being and the education. So it's been pretty dismal in recent years. You've done a lot of research and investigations when it comes to child care assistance, families having access to nutritional programs, and even the evaluation of the firstborn visiting model. Based on your research, how would approving a policy like this help the state move in a better direction where we're not hearing those rankings? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say first that I am and have been for many years, like fairly agnostic about where we get resources. <laughs> so whether it's, um, you know, this or whether it's strategic thinking about how we spend the early childhood trust fund, um, there is evidence that resources are really important. Um, and some I think of what has held New Mexico back is that the early childhood system hasn't been fully funded. And I want to say what I mean about that because I do think it has been really prioritized by the legislature. I think there's some giving the legislature credit that should happen around, um, you know, through the recession and through these times when other things were cut deeply. Early childhood education was largely held harmless and even increased. So I think... Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that in this conversation, that, that early childhood education has fared pretty well in the state budget process. However, um, 
I do think that the needs in New Mexico are so great that his, that is sort of historically the resources still haven't met demand because of that demand. And so I think a steady, predictable sort of infusion of resources um, does has a potential to to make sure that each community can sort of get all the services that families need and not. When I talk about demand, not all families want the same things. Like, I wanted center-based infant care for my family, but we know from our research that there's a lot of New Mexico families that don't want center-based infant care. They want home-based supports in the early years, and then maybe when their kid gets a little older, they're interested in the center. And so we're, I think um, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but so that communities could figure out what, what the people living in their communities do need and find the right services for them. My next guest, Dr. Gwen Perea Warneman, Director of the New Mexico Legica- Legislative Education Study Committee. Welcome to the show, Dr. Warneman. Good morning, Taylor. Thank you for having me. You know, we're hearing that this could be a little bit more complex than it could seem, but the Legislative Education Study Committee actually did a bill analysis breaking down the issues and the money. The land-grant permanent fund has been reserved for public schools in the past. Why are we considering using the money from this fund rather than create new legislation to allocate other state money? Sure, that's a great question. Um, You know, I think part of the discussion here is the difference between where we are um, with our budget now versus where we have been even you know three or four years ago. Um, the, the revenue that we've seen in the past couple of years or specifically this year is sort of unprecedented in terms of um, uh, impact of oil and gas in our state. And we're, we're very lucky, we're blessed that we have this revenue, that we're able to sort of benefit from it. And really our school systems um, from early childhood all the way up through higher ed are really the beneficiaries. Our students are the beneficiaries of that. Of that. Um, so the, the complexity lies in um, knowing we needed a strong investment in our public school systems and in our children and then seeing that where we are now with this funding is sort of um, creating a complexity around the amount of money that we have, the urgency to use it, but use it well, um, and, and sort of going back to a space of how do we effectively use the significant funding that we're going to see, not just from this potential um, constitutional amendment, if it's if the voters so choose, but the actual distributions that will come from also the early childhood fund, which is projected to sort of reach a estimated 4.85 billion as of 2023, right? So there's, it, it, I think the um, interesting space here is just looking at the the enormity of the money <laughs> um, and 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 being able to provide some solid recommendations to our legislature. So if we're staff or the legislature, solid recommendations on what is the use of this fund. And I know one of the bigger criticisms is this fund maybe could get down to zero or comp- deplete completely. Is that is that fair to say or is that just speculating? That's a, that's not necessarily true. I think the 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 more um, correct criticism of this is that um, we wouldn't see the actual return on the investment at a rate that matches inflation, if you uh, will. So it, there's really not a possibility that it's going to get down to zero. I think our legislature, our finance committee, are really wise in terms of not drawing down a percentage that would actually get us to zero. So even going up to 6.25, which I think is where where this might go if we add the additional 1.25% um, drawdown, um, even at that rate, it's not gonna get us to zero. However, what will happen is the, um, the fund itself will not grow in a, in a way that matches actual inflation. So. I don't know. I'm not the finance committee. I'm the education committee director. Um, so my my wheelhouse is really in policy and in really in, in the space of what's best use of these funds that really will make a difference and transform our systems. Great. Um, I'm going to have to pause you right there, Gwen. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9. I'm Taylor Velasquez. We're taking a look at early, funding early childhood education and we'll we'll be back in a moment. 
Support for KUNM comes from Mitucci's Restaurants, creating artisan Italian food and handcrafted cocktails since 2013, with locations in Albuquerque, Rio Rancho, and the new Mitucci's Bar Roma in Knob Hill, and online at Mitucci's.com. Connect to your local community by becoming a KUNM business underwriter. Program support through underwriting highlights your business while supporting news and locally curated music. To become a business underwriter, contact Kelly at 505-277-3969. Her name was Grażyna Batskiewicz, a composer in Poland in the mid-20th century. And even during the Second World War, she was part of an underground concert scene. We'll hear a piece she wrote in Warsaw in the middle of 1943 on the next Performance Today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Taylor Velazquez. We're taking your calls about the constitutional amendment on November's ballot that could give additional funding to pre-K and K-12 programs. Are you a teacher? How will this how will more funding help alleviate the shortages and burnout? Give us a call at 505-277-5866 and let us know. Or you can email us at letstalk at KUNM.org. And Dr. Warneman, I want to get back to you. One of the biggest issues in education in the state right now is responding to the Martinez and Yazzie lawsuits. In that ruling, the court found the state failed to provide quality programs targeted to meet the needs of at-risk students who are economically disadvantaged, English learners, Native American students, and students who have disabilities. How could the fund contribute to addressing the remedies set forth by this lawsuit? Great question, Taylor. Um, that is sort of the biggest priority, I think, for us as a state and the legislature in terms of addressing and supporting the transformation of education in New Mexico. A couple different things. Uh, so first and foremost, really investing in our educators and the adults that serve the students in our system. Um, if we want to create a high quality education system, the best thing that we can do is really honor the profession and the, uh, the profession surrounding um, those students. That includes counselors, social workers, therapists, um, occupational physical therapists, um, our speech pathologists, our school nurses, our educators, our instructional assistants, and really our leadership there. We need to highly invest in our principals, in our school boards, and in our superintendents. The adults that serve students are the most critical right now in terms of um, not just recognizing what we're kind of calling burnout, uh, lack of professional work time, all of those things, but really, I think, um, understanding that they need the resources to do the best job possible. Um, that the funding, I think, can first and foremost support those adults um, in, in both their salary and in their benefits and in um, professional work time supports. Uh, the second thing I would say is funding in terms of our at-risk funding that goes to schools um, and also in er the early childhood space, really acknowledging and identifying who are the students that need this the most. Um, and being wise about direct targeted funding for those students that maybe need extra supports. And that includes tutoring, that includes um, support for their families in terms of um, extra um, outreach or high dosage tutoring, um, extra supports in terms of wraparound, um, out, out of school time network type work, because those things we know make just as much an impact as the actual class work time. So those are two things that I can think of right off the top of my head that this funding will support. And I want to get back to the actual dollar amounts. Funding in capacity for early childhood has steadily increased in recent years. In the current fiscal year, the legislature appropriated nearly $380 million to early childhood programs, which is about 188% increase since the fiscal year in 2012. But the legislature, Legislative Finance Committee has noted inefficiencies in the system because of poor collaboration. And because child care and pre-care is rigidly inconsistent, there's a scarcity in some areas and an oversatura oversaturation in others. How can we afford this or avoid this from happening if this bill were to pass? Great question, Taylor. Um, the, uh, the most important thing here is not just um, 
you know, flooding the system with dollars, um, which I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that this amendment would do that. I do think, though, however, it behooves the, us, the state, the legislators, um, the staff that serve the legislators, such as myself, and all of the state agencies to really be fiscally mindful um, and ethical of how these dollars are used and do so in the best possible way. And to that extent, communication, strategy, um, really w well-developed programs that are research-based are critical here. Um, if we're using taxpayer dollars, we need to do so in the best possible way. So communication and um, understanding what exactly is happening in these communities, communities landscape maps. I think um, you see now an increase in um, strong collaboration among state agencies between higher ed, early childhood, um, early care department, and then the pu public education department. Um, but it also behooves us as the legislative staff, whether it's the legislative finance committee or ourselves as the legislative education study committee, to also partner in terms of really thinking deeply about how policy and budget are hand in hand and really support um, the state in moving forward. Definitely. And we heard from Haley earlier about the issues and the complexities when it comes to our workforce. But I want to ask you, will these funds be available to use for workforce development? Are we going to have to push for more funding in the January 2023 legislative session? What does that look like? Sure, I think actually we're, we're gonna have plenty of funds <laughs> um, and not just because of what might potentially happen with the vote on the constitutional amendment, but um, we have some pretty remarkable uh, revenue that we see in the state because of oil and gas. Um, I think that uh, we'll be mindful um, in terms of budgets that you'll see coming out because we know that the market is volatile um, we see that this week, uh, very much the impact of that. So being mindful in terms of what are we call recurring funds, things that will continue to support into the future versus things that we can invest in right now immediately that are not necessarily recurring, but wise investments at the moment. So. And I want to throw you this question, Haley. We spoke earlier about the workforce and shortages in the early childhood field. Are you concerned that if constitutional amendment number one passes, we'll be in the same place because we won't have the providers? Concerned is not the right word, but I think it will have to be an area of extreme focus, which I think it will be. Like state leaders know this, but it will have to be an area of great focus. And one of the real challenges of supporting the early childhood workforce, which is a little different from supporting the K-12 workforce, is... By and large, the K-12 uh, education workforce are state employees. And so, you know, with, with sort of resources and political will, the state legislature and the governor can give them all the raise. And that is actually a relatively straightforward process compared to early childhood, where the system we have is really um, a mix of private businesses, nonprofit organizations, local community-based organizations. Like most early childhood education is not delivered by a, a sort of state entity in the way that public schooling is, you know, um, they run. It happens at privately run childcare centers and home visiting programs, and so getting money to the workforce of those places is just sort of um, procedurally quite quite a bit more complicated um, to just give this workforce a raise. But I think there's people working hard on it, and that's why you see things like. Um, pay stipends for this workforce where they get their regular pay from where they are and then they apply for sort of a supplemental stipend. You see um, other kinds of supports. You see scholarships because it is a little bit complicated to just give this this sort of workforce a raise. And you also do see the state sort of increasing the rates that are paid to these providers. So increasing the rates paid for childcare subsidy, looking at the rates that are paid for pre-K and home visiting related to the workforce. But it just is a much more complex system. Yeah, for sure. I'm hearing that and we're I think we're gaining that knowledge as we go. But I want to introduce my next guest now, Senator Bill Scherer. He's a Republican lawmaker representing the Farmington area in northwest New Mexico. Good morning, Senator Scherer. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Taylor. Thank you for having me on. No problem. And you've said that by using the permanent fund, we're going the wrong way to achieve our goals. Can you explain a little bit of that more? Well, first, I don't disagree with the goals. I disagree with how we're going to get there. We've 
just a bit of history. In 2003, we, we went into the permanent fund using all the same arguments you've just heard. We need the money today, not for some child 20 years from now. Well, here we are 20 years from now, and had we not dipped into that permanent fund then, we would have more money than they're asking for right now. And it would just naturally flow into the, into the general fund. So our, our permanent fund actually reduces your personal taxes by 14%, whether that's personal income tax or gross receipts tax, whatever. Our permanent fund is absorbing 14% of the taxes that would have to be paid had we not had that permanent fund. So I think that's a big deal. But currently, uh, what, the, what we did in the legislature is we created an early childhood trust fund. And how it's funded is ex excess money from oil and gas revenue over the last five year rolling average goes into this fund then that fund is there for early childhood. But it still has to build, just like the permanent fund, you know, we invest it, does interest and all that. So this year, about $30 million is available. Next year, it's gonna be 40, just by the natural flow of the way oil and gas money is gonna come into this thing. What that means is the year after that, though, is it's gonna be 121 million, and the year after that, about 235 million dollars just for early childhood. We already set that up. That's going to happen. So I heard that uh, we're moving away from oil and gas. Okay, great, but not now. Right now, oil and gas is, is bringing more money into the state than we know how to spend, that we, that we can spend. So the, the workforce issue uh, came up. So if you have $40 million now, that's enough to help start getting things in place. But then the next year with $121 million, now you've got a system in place where you can actually spend that money. So we don't need to do this uh, into the permanent fund. In the long run, it will, it will harm children in the future, absolutely. Just like the 2003 one harmed children today. Um, but, but more importantly, we have money now to do it. And once it's in this trust fund, it's not going to go away. It's in the trust fund. So can it, can it decrease? Yes, but not likely. It's going to have $8 billion in there sitting there growing, uh, to help fund, uh, early childhood education in perpetuity. So that, I think, is the, is the real issue. We don't need to do this because we've already set up a better plan to do it that, that puts money in for today's children and still protects tomorrow's children. And I want to get more onto your point about this could potentially hurt child, children's futures. Um, do you worry the fund will reach lows or when it has been steadily growing, or should we allow it to steadily grow? The, the land grant permanent fund that works. Yes. Is that the? Uh, it should it should continue to grow. The bigger it gets, the better off we are. So the biggest portion of it, it was pointed out, goes to the common schools, which was the term used in 1910. So we call it public school today, but that's where most of that money goes. Some of that money goes to UNM or New Mexico State or you know, the school for the deaf, whatever. Um, they're broken down in those categories. And the idea when that was set up was we would have money forever to fund the common schools. And so it should grow until it completely funds the common schools. And we've heard that early childhood education is critical for that brain development and readiness to learn once kids reach kindergarten. New Mexico has ranked 50th in education. In your opinion, how should we consider funding early childhood education? And what would that mean to you? Well, when we did this before, we were 48th or 49th in education. We took money out of the permanent fund, and by golly, we stayed 48th or 49th, and then we even grew to 50th. So money didn't make the difference then. So in this case, 
we need to look at something besides money. And I think the big thing, you know, one of the things they talked about was uh, home visiting. About 15% of our families have home visiting now. And when we talked about a comprehensive plan on how to do this, the plan was we would have 50% home visiting. The problem with that plan is we don't know how we're going to get from 15 to 50. So I think that's the, that's the gap that needs to be filled. How exactly are we going to increase that home visiting from 15% to 50%? We can't just say that we're going to go to 50 and not have a plan to do it. So that's where I think the gap is. It's not money. We as the legislature have put plenty of money in it that will grow. But we're not, at least I'm not, comfortable with how it's going to be spent. Because I don't see that plan. And when we're talking about lags, we're also considering the Yazzie and Martinez lawsuit. And we know New Mexico has not been providing enough resources for at-risk students who are lagging behind. But by using these funds from the land-grant permanent fund, are there ways to set in place to measure success? Or are you concerned about using this money and not being able to see the impact of it? So again, we've, we've actually put a lot of more money into education. Uh, recently. Um, And part of that was because we have this oil and gas revenue, massive amounts of oil and gas revenue right now. So we were able to put it in there. We gave teachers a 7% raise. We changed their minimum starting salaries uh, to 40,000, 40, or excuse me, 50, 60, 70,000, depending on what level teacher they are. So $50,000 salary in New Mexico is not bad. Uh, so we've tried to do things to attract teachers, to attract good teachers, to uh, maybe bring some of the teachers that we lost to Texas or Colorado, whatever, back here, uh, because now they're going to get paid as, at least as well as they were in these other states, in some cases better. And it looks like we have a caller on the line, April from Albuquerque. Thanks for calling in today. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. And it looks like you're a high school teacher. Yes, I'm a high school teacher in Albuquerque. And I just want to say that I 100% support this constitutional amendment. Um, Early childhood education, it's not just for early childhood. It lasts all the way through high school. It sets up students for success all the way through high school and the rest of their lives. And when I say success, I am not talking about being a straight A student. I am just talking about being ready for school and being ready to learn. Okay, just because you don't get straight A's doesn't mean you are not capable of working hard and doing your best. And this all starts at home in the earliest years. So I am 100% on board for this. I completely disagree that we need to wait and find out a different way to uh, get the money. No, this needs to happen now. I would say this is an emergency for our students and our families of New Mexico. And I'm going to pause the conversation right there. We're talking about funding early childhood education and our public school systems. Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Taylor Velasquez, and we'll be back in a minute. Tribal leaders make difficult decisions every day and face constant criticism from the public. The COVID pandemic was an unprecedented health crisis with few good options. In the first of a series of conversations with tribal leaders, we'll hear about the difficulties and successes tribal leaders encounter on a daily basis. That's on the next Native America Calling. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. KUNM wants to help our listeners in Santa Fe with the removal of old vehicles now that the junk vehicle ordinance is in effect. We just learned that any junk vehicles that don't comply with the new ordinance could be subject to fines, and we want to help. If you have a junker that needs to be removed from your property, just give us a call. We'll come pick it up for free and turn that old car into support for KUNM. Call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227. 
Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We're taking a look at what it would take to fund high-quality early education programs. There's still time to call in this morning at 505-277-5866. And I want to go back to Senator Scherer. Um, there, this has been a hot-button debate for a long, long time. But I've seen in the Albuquerque Journal opinion piece pointed out that divisions like the Children, Youth, and Families or uh, department and organiza- organizations receiving funding for services like prenatal care and birth to, to birth to pre-K care, but Medicaid covers this with tax money. There are claims that using the education bun- budget for these services is unconstitutional. Is this true? And can you explain what the education budget can actually allocate funding to? So the education budget is just a line item on our in our uh, budget and it uh, today we have about an eight just shy of eight and a half billion dollar budget but of that just shy of four billion dollars goes to k-12 education so close to half of our budget goes to education directly today and so you can put that money it's distributed to the schools with our funding formula so it you know depends on the what grade it is and or is it a bilingual or special needs that they get extra extra money in the funding formula for that and i want to introduce but the rest of the next part of our money though the next greatest thing is is the medicaid uh budget that's our next biggest line item so we fund that pretty well and with that we get a we get a match from the federal government so the federal government actually pays about 75% of whatever Medicaid money is spent in New Mexico. So there's money to do things like that. Again, I think it's just a matter of how do we prioritize that money? It's there. Right. And now I want to introduce my next guest, Carmela Salinas, early childhood educator in Española. Hi, Carmela. Welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I'm happy to be here. Um, I would like to say that, you know, listening um, thus far, I really do think money needs to be put into birth to pre-K. I teach um, um, New Mexico pre-K in a public school, um, but I, I didn't start out in a public school. I started out in an early childhood center, and really I think that there needs to be a wage and career ladder for these teachers. Um, I know some of them might be working towards a degree, but I think even within public schools, it is really difficult to attain and retain teachers. But if you're not getting paid a living wage, um, like a lot of women from that are doing birth to pre-K, um, the, the turnover rate is going to be super high. I mean, the turnover rate for public um, at, for public schools is high um, because teaching, and especially teaching after COVID, I think. Um, teaching during COVID and after COVID has proven to be extremely difficult. And just like your last caller um, called in and said, really um, birth to pre-K sets the foundation for every other grade. Um, And I see that even in our kindergarten uh, at Alcald Elementary where, you know, I told the kindergarten, you're going to have an awesome class. I had a great group last year, but then she had an influx of kids coming in that had no pre-K and they, she had to start from square one. You know, we pre-K early childhood, we really do um, set the foundation for learning by, you know, just um, learning things like self-regulation, focusing, um, cooperative play, uh, social emotional health. Um, and if you go into kindergarten without ha- having any of those, it's, and then continue on, you're setting behind, you're setting those children behind everyone else. Um, uh, and it's, it's not fair. And it's not fair to the kids who went to pre-K either. It looks like we have a caller from Ellen on the line from Albuquerque. Good morning, Ellen. Oh, good morning. Um, how's everybody doing today? I think we're all doing great, but it's great to hear from you. I have a couple of quick questions here for you. We have a, um, well, how much of this investment is going into uh, early childhood for people who are, or for children who are uh, 
visually impaired or, you know, stuff like that. And also how much did COVID set you guys back in the efforts to continue the services? These are great services, and I'm actually all for this amendment, but um, I was just just curious about that. Great, Ellen. Thanks for calling in. And Carmilla, I would like to throw you that question. You're in the classroom every day. You've gone through the pandemic right along with your students. How has COVID impacted our poor levels of education now? Well, I think um, one thing we know is that parents, even though they're their first, they're your child's first teacher, um, I think it was very difficult to teach um, and for children to learn online. Um, I taught pre-K on, virtually, which it absolutely did not work. Right? Um, but I do think that COVID really set um, set children behind um, just because they weren't in a classroom. Um, they set times, uh, you know, I think of kids who didn't have internet, right? Or, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that. Um, but in the, sa- in the same um, respect, I think that COVID uh, um, brought a lot of respect to teachers because parents had a, a, such a difficult time, you know, trying to teach their kids at home um, or trying to figure out, you know, the, their device or, or the Internet or teaching, right? Um, I know even, I even had a difficult time with my son. He was 14 and 15 and, and you know, studying things that I was like, okay, how, how, can, I, how can I help him? So, yeah, I think COVID... Um, it set, it set everyone behind, but it also brought a lot of respect for teachers. Yeah, I can only imagine. And when we talk about education, we're talking about those shortages like you mentioned. But can you explain how f- this kind of funding that could be used to hire teachers and have mental health supports for teachers and students also paying for building maintenance? How could that impact your day to day life, especially living in this kind of post COVID, not post COVID era? So for me, because I now work at the public schools, I feel like I have a, a great wage. You know, thank you to uh, Governor Lujan Grisham, who set, gave everybody raises this past year. Um, I, I do feel valued, um, but I also felt feel spread thin and overworked. And I think a lot of teachers feel that way. Um, you have sometimes a higher class load than what you're supposed to have. Um, and I think that a lot of teachers are leaving just because it's difficult. Teaching is not easy. It is not easy. And I mean, I, I teach pre-K. I've taught pre-K for 21 years. For me, this, it's really my life calling, right? But I think of um, like the third grade teacher, sixth grade teacher, maybe who, uh, who has kids at all these different levels. Um, But really I think where the funding should go is to, um, like I said before, birth to pre-K because a lot of those early childhood centers, they don't, they make, you know, maybe $12 an hour, um, no health benefits, no insurance. Um, and I think that, you know, these women love their job too and men, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think the funding could go there so that we can, um, so that we can retain high quality teachers. And even I know there's scholarships out there, like I said, a wage and career ladder should be implemented um, so that we're um, accountable for the high quality. And it looks like we got an email from a listener, Scott in Santa Fe, who is a public school teacher. And he said he opposes this amendment and thinks that New Mexico voters should reject it. It is another yet another demand by the public education system for more money to assume more responsibility for raising more children at an earlier age. Traditionally, children waited until the age of five before preparing for the school system. Now we're talking about taking in children as young as three. In this case, it is less about education as it is about free daycare for working parents. At the very least, let's call it what it is, and it's a system. And if the system is going to demand that children begin school at an earlier stage in life, those students should also graduate earlier. Carmela, what do you make of this? Um, I think you know. I've heard I've heard that opinion from someone else before, but um, I really think parents have to work. Parents have to work. Um, 
why can't your child be and and I'm not saying uh, you know put your child into pre-k at three years old but some a lot of parents need that um, that care given provided for them and um, I think currently most households spend 20% of their income on child care um, so it really is I mean uh, I, I disagree with this person who wrote in because I've been um, I've been in the private sector and I've seen um, even to, you know, I've been uh, laid off. I've been able to, you know, my uh, director couldn't pay me like, you know, we don't have enough money to like run a, a child care center and pay their employees uh, decent wages. And I mean, um and provide a high-quality, affordable education for birth to pre-K. I think that, you know, and I do think once kids start at five years old, you need all that other stuff I talked about, like the social-emotional skills. Five years old is kindergarten is academic. It's not kindergarten from, you know, the 70s. It's kindergarten from now. And they have... uh, they have expectations. The children have expectations. It's not playing. It's not, it's academic work sitting for, you know, 90 minutes at a time. And, um, so yeah, I think five, sending your child at five is too late. And now I want to pivot to my last guest this hour, Jessica Cowdery, who is an advocate for passing constitutional amendment number one and who is a parent. Welcome to the show, Jessa. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. And Jessa, we're talking about what access to childcare would actually look like and how much families are spending their income on this. What are some of the barriers to that access right now? Well, it's been brought up um, in this show, and it is so important that we are supporting families who do want to return to work or, you know, have that full life that they want to live. Um, and childcare is incredibly expensive. It's inc- really exciting right now that with some of the um, increased funding uh, s- to, uh, supports to the states um, in New Mexico, we have increased the childcare assistance, um, the income uh, eligibility, but it's only temporary. It's up to 300% of the federal poverty level, and that is incredible. Um, and excuse me, 400% of the, the federal poverty level. And so that is incredible. But if we want to continue to provide those supports for families, then we need reliable, sustainable funding. And that's what this constitutional amendment can do. I know we're in an, uh, a boom right now with oil, but there will be a bust. And what this constitutional amendment does is provide that funding so that we can have um, this Uh, resource for early childhood. And that's how this constitutional amendment is unique compared to the 2003 uh, constitutional amendment is that it includes early childhood, which is foundational, as we've already discussed, for the early childhood system. And we've talked about so much this morning that's being suggested, and there's so much more suggestions out there, and it's a little complex. Can you tell us what stands out to you and what's important from a parent's perspective? Definitely. So, you know, I I work at CHI St. Joseph's Children. We provide home visiting across the state. Um, But I'm also a graduate from the program with my husband and my three-year-old. And it is just incredible the impact that we have seen in in how this has set us up um, to be the best parents we can uh, be for our child. And what we're really looking at is that, you know, the, the early childhood education care department has done a phenomenal job as well as the legislature in um, amping up the funding for early childhood. And we are seeing results um, that that are in the Legislative Finance Committee report on early childhood accountability. Um, and, but we need to expand those to more children across the state. Um, I was recently down in, in Roswell and, and folks in Artesia, you know, they want to put their child in an early childhood center, but there is not the capacity um, to ensure that all families in every corner of the state have access to these high quality programs that have made a difference in my life. And I know um, it, that it will make a difference in, in many lives across the state. But we need to increase um, the, the capacity of our state and the, the availability of these transformational programs. Um, and so that is what is before voters starting October 11th, when folks can go vote for early voting, um, is providing this funding uh, and transforming our system. This is a one in a lifetime opportunity uh, to support children and educators across the state. And I want to bring back Senator Scherer into the conversation. What do you make of what Jessa just said, Senator Scherer? Well, several people mentioned that it's an emergency. We need money now. We have money now. 
we built the program for now. It's just going to grow. So we have the money. And yes, there will, there's bust and boom cycle with oil and gas. Absolutely always happens. The difference with this is we've put money into this trust fund that's already there, or it, it will be there. Okay. Uh, it's growing. It's going to continue to grow at least for the next few years. And it will get up to $8 billion, maybe $9 billion. And when it gets there, when you draw off of that, just in the natural course of the way things will happen, you're going to have $300 million by 2026, <clears throat> by the 2026 fiscal year, which really starts in 2025. So it's already there. And it's not going to go away because once it hits that point, it's not going to deplete so the money's there. The money's going to continue to be there. We don't need to. We don't need to take money out of the permanent fund because we built a trust fund that will more than fund the projects that they're talking about. I'm not opposed to the projects. Just saying that we have the money. We've already put it there. We don't need to hit it again from somewhere else. And Haley, I want to throw this question at you too. We just heard that the money's there should grow and stay and grow there. But how do we still balance it, the fund growing, but making this system robust for children and the children care facilities? Um, well, I am not a fiscal analyst, so it is perhaps not the best question for me. Um, Jessa, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I would love to address this. I want to just zoom out a little bit and really recognize the phenomenal work of the Early Childhood Education and Care Department. I, I also am not an employee with them, but they've been standing up this department. And uh, through the Secretary Gurginski and her team, they have put a four-year finance plan, um, which outlines that when we have this fully funded, robust program, it'll be about $500 million. So even with this land-grant permanent fund, permanent school fund distribution to early childhood, plus the ch early childhood trust fund, plus general uh, fund allocations, we will then get to the goal for the transformation that we desire to see. And I really appreciate how Haley um, really outlined how we started in a place where we are the lowest in early childhood um, outcomes. And so we have had a long ways to go. And so this is really, these multiple streams are going to be necessary to provide that equity and fairness for all New Mexicans and children across the state. And we've heard a lot of different perspectives this morning, but as a parent, how would the passage of this amendment affect your life and the lives of the parents that you know? You know, it's that's a great question because we're in this together. It takes a community of support uh, for all of our children to thrive. So when Cassian's classmates are doing well and when all New Mexicans are doing well, everybody benefits. Um, this is a way to diversify our investments from from Wall Street into our children. And you cannot go wrong when we invest in our children so that they're growing up healthy, happy, and ready to give back to life, um, give back to the community. And so I think that it'll have a huge impact for, for parents of young children and all New Mexicans. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thanks to everyone who called and emailed to share your thoughts. And thank you so much to our guest, Haley Hines, Dr. Gwen Perea Warnament, Senator Bill Scherer, Carmela Salinas, and Jessica Cowdery. This show was made possible by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and KUNM listeners like you. And let's keep the conversation going. Share your ideas on Twitter using the hashtag Let's Talk NM on Facebook or search for KUNM Radio or email let's talk at kunm.org if you miss part of the show stream it online or subscribe to our podcast on spotify or apple podcasts our engineer is marino spencer jeanette didio screened your calls kave mohead tweeted news director megan kamrick is our executive producer on the next week's show we'll be taking a look at the carson national forest management plan i'm taylor velasquez this is let's talk new mexico on 89.9 kunm